0: actually jumping into uh, Romans chapters 4 through 6. Last week uh, we looked at uh, Romans chapter 1 through uh, 3 and uh, we started our traveling through the book of Romans. Uh, Within the pages of this book we're going to find a lot of information Uh, and at times some of this information I'm not going to lie can be a little bit hard to swallow. Last week, we talked about uncomfortable truth. We talked about how Paul just lays out the truth and how he is unashamed uh, of the words that he is preaching to those that are hearing in this letter. You know, the author Mark Twain once said, uh, well, he's actually famous for many sayings, but one time he said this. He said, the truth hurts, but silence kills. Truth hurts, but silence kills. It couldn't have been more correct, especially in light of last week's sermon, The honest truth is, the honest truth isn't always easy to hear. It's not easy to swallow. It's sometimes hard to say as well. But I think that most of us would rather surround ourselves with people who tell us the truth than those who lie to us to keep us happy. God's word is truth, and it does not change based on our feelings. Now, God has always had our best interests in mind and at heart. Saying yes to God means saying no to something else within this world and this is why his word says, the verses that we are memorizing, these words, let's say them together. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. comes from Titus 2, 11 through 12. Now, like I said before, we're memorizing it in the NIV on purpose, it has a slightly different wording, and I've been saying this for the last couple of months, there's a lot there, but it's got such a deep application for each of our daily lives, and we're going to continue this one all the way through the end of the month and we'll move on to something else. This grace of God that the passage talks about is going to be our primary topic of discussion today as we're going through the sermon. The grace is extended to us. But once it's accepted, it'll change your life completely. Now, in the book of Romans, there's going to be some big and difficult words. um, He gets um, very technical at times, and he can kind of lose you in, in some of the depth of what he's talking about. These words that we're going to be approaching are not common words that we typically say when we're talking to one another, but rather they're words that you're most likely going to run across if you go to court. You ever found yourself in court? Please don't raise your hands. Please don't. You never know. Uh, Today's sermon is titled, With One of Those Words, and we're going to be looking at it and the impact of your life. So, uh, that word is justification. The word that we're going to be looking at today is justification as Paul is using it. Now, typically, when I think of the word justification, I think of my children. When they know they have done something wrong, and they come and talk to me, they say that they are, um, without excuse, they try to justify their actions. You ever had your kids try to justify their actions? Another use of the word is a more legal term when you're balancing the books to justify the legal ledger. Um, So there's a couple of different ways, accounting for every dollar earned, but this word actually carries a much heavier meaning than when they bring it into the court area. Uh, and the legal definition is going to be really wordy, so I'm going to put it up on the screen, and I promise you probably won't remember it. But the main point is the very beginning sentence which says a sufficient or acceptable excuse or explanation made in court for an act that is otherwise unlawful, the showing of adequate reason in court why a defendant committed the offense, which he or she is confused, would serve relieve the defendant of liability. Now, at this point, big words, big definition. Paul is currently under confinement. At this point, he is actually under house arrest. He has been dealing with legal documents, and he has been making his appeal to different rulers, slowly making his way all the way up to the capital city of Rome in Italy. And so he has this kind of thing on his mind constantly, and he starts talking legalese when he's writing this letter. So last week, we looked at our situation, and in doing so, we, we saw that Paul reasoned that we were each without excuse. He said, you are inexcusable, old man. Whoever you judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You see, he reasoned that we can't act our way into having a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, we couldn't act our way into having a right relationship with our Creator. Today, we're going to be continuing forward with this argument as he's now going to turn to his fellow uh, brethren, the Jews. So before he talked about the Gentiles, now he's actually going to be going into the Jews. So today we're going to look at three main points. Uh, We're going to look at Abraham's example, and then Christ's sacrifice, and finally our response. Now one thing that we do uh, every week, if you're interested, is I put out a kid's bulletin. Um, and I make it and put it in the back if there's any spare. Uh, It simplifies some of the questions for the kids. This week's going to get a little bit deep. Uh, So if you are interested, you can go back there. If there's spare as an adult, you can grab one as well. We even have crayons, so, you know, you can color. Got a coloring page on the back. I'm I'm just saying, just, you know, I'm a person that likes to color and doodle while uh, other people are speaking, Uh, so uh, go ahead. Okay, so today we're going to jump into Abraham's example. Now, while Abraham was just a man, In Paul's time, he was remembered almost as more than a man. In all reality, in Paul's time, people were starting to worship him as something else. And Paul recognized that this was not correct. You see, Abraham was and still is the founder of the Jewish faith. He's the patriarch that God called out of his land into something he didn't know where he was going or what he was doing. He had to turn everything around and follow God. And it eventually would turn the world on its head because of what he was doing through Abraham, what God was doing through Abraham. Now, the people remembered what Abraham had done, but Paul wanted to remind them that it wasn't about Abraham's works. It wasn't what he did with his hands. There was something more important that the people, his friends, his relatives, the Jews, were missing. So let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 together. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is what he says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, if Abraham was justified by works, has he something to boast about? It's kind of the way he answers that. So, what do you suppose this is? Was was Abraham able to find a way to act in such a way? That he could find righteousness before God? Because if he could, then he would have been the only man to have been able to do that. That he would have been actually able to act his way into God's standards. He would have been the only man in history. In fact, many have tried and are still trying to act their way into God's good favor. Think of the pilgrimages the Muslims take. Think of the holy wars that happened centuries ago. Think of our Amish neighbors who were coming by this morning as they're going on to their services who purposefully limit their lives. They make life harder so that they can act better in accordance and live a more godly standard. They actually purposely limit their life and change that so that their actions will hopefully earn them more respect with God. But Paul reminds us that Scripture tells us a different story, that Abraham believed in God and that his belief was what was accounted to him for his righteousness. Let's look at the next couple of verses, 4 through 8. 4 through 8. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man whom God imputes righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So here we can start taking some of the application from Abraham's life. It's a cue on how God has rewarded him. You're going to notice in this section that it begins that we try to earn our salvation. That the works and the wages that we actually earn, where we try our best, are actually accounted against us, not for grace, but rather for debt. So what he's saying is what you try to do And acting better and trying to change what you're doing isn't actually helping you get closer to God. God's word actually says it's actually counted against you. And it's actually held against you as debt. That's exactly what verse 4 says. So let me help you wrap your mind about this by asking a question. Let's ask this question. Does acting like a better Christian improve your stance before God? Does acting like a better Christian improve your stance before God? Is giving to the poor, helping out your elderly neighbor, telling others the gospel of Jesus. Do those things improve your standing with God? I want you think about that for a minute. Do your actions improve your standing with God? Let's go back to the verse. It says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. That's Romans 4, 4. So the Bible says your works, what you do, are not counted to you as grace, but with God they are debt. So your natural reaction is probably going to be the same if you're following along and you're thinking this through. Your reaction is probably going to be the same as mine when I'm starting to look at this. I ask the question, you're probably going to ask this one as well. Wait, doesn't God want me to show good works? Doesn't God want me to show good works? The answer is absolutely yes. God wants us to do good things. But what you do does not improve your standing before God. What you do does not improve your standing before God. It does, however, show others that you have had a heart change. There's the difference. You're not improving your standing before God. You're showing others that you've had a heart change. There have been many arguments in Christian circles about our faith and our works. There's this constant tension between our faith and our works uh, within Christian circles and even within the Bible itself that uh, there's a bunch of talk about it. There are Christians uh, called Calvinists who have come to the conclusion that God is going to have his will no matter what. And in the Calvinist line of thinking, if you are a five-point Calvinist, there are some that don't, but if you are along that line of thinking, you believe that God will have his way no matter what, so far to the fact that you don't even have to tell people the gospel to get them saved. Which is not what scripture says. There's a completely different story if you read Romans chapter 10. Now the author James actually recognizes this, And he knows that there's this struggle between faith and works. And he says this on this topic. He says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, what faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. So we're not justified by our works, by what we do. We are justified by our faith, by what we believe. But in balance, Our works show our faith. So there's this balance. It kind of goes back and forth, and it's something we have to come to an understanding of. So the question remains, if Abraham was justified by his faith, how did this happen? What did he have in faith that God gave him this standing? He had this special standing. What was it about his faith that made him different? Why did he have this standing before God? God gave a promise to Abraham, and he believed it. So let's check out the next set of verses in 13 through 16. 13 through 16. For a promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be in accordance with grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So here, Paul is actually referencing a very important story that you may have heard of. Abraham was getting really old and God had promised to him that there was going to be this nation that came from him. But at one point, he's really, really old past the childbearing years and he still hasn't had a kid. And his faith is starting to waver. And he does what most of us do when his faith starts to waver. He starts seeking out a way that he can make God's will work for his life. His wife says, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you marry my uh, slave girl, Hagar, have a child with her, and that will fulfill God's promise. That wasn't God's promise. And when we try to go around it, it generally works out fairly poorly. But unfortunately, that's exactly what happened is they figured out a way to try to make God's law work for them. And unfortunately, being less than perfect people, he married the slave and he had a child. So Sarah told Abraham, and they now have this child. And today, the Muslim nation will actually say that they are the descendants of Abraham. They're technically correct. That is the firstborn. But God wanted to work through faith. God wanted to work in a way that man could never accomplish on his own. God was going for something different because he wanted all of the glory to go back to him and not to man. God didn't give a promise through natural means. This is partly why we see the Bible as a whole, and it helps us. We have to look at both ends of the Bible, and we have to look at it as a whole to help us to understand what is happening and to make life easier to understand. You see, the Savior would eventually be born. The Savior was promised. But we know him now as Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus was born through the son of promise. So let's look at point number two, which is Christ's sacrifice. We'll go into Christ's sacrifice. At this point, Paul has already established that everything is going to change in our lives. In fact, he begins chapter 5 in this way. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Our justification, sermon title today, comes from the actions of Jesus and the faith that we have on his actions. So you may have realized by now that we are not worthy of the kindness that Jesus has displayed to us. We are all stained permanently by sin. So the question is, why did Jesus do it? Why did he step down? Why did he do the sacrifice? Why did he stand in our place? Let's look at the next couple of verses together. If you'll flip with me to chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 says, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man, one will die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a description that paints perfectly exactly where we are before God. And how benevolent God has been to us. That through Jesus Christ, we can actually have a fixed relationship. God came down. It's interesting because it says that it's rare for somebody to even die for a good person. You've probably heard of someone sacrificing their life for a general or for somebody else important. But it's even rarer for somebody to die for not only an enemy, but also someone that the world would consider unredeemable. But this is exactly what Jesus did. We aren't held in high honor. And Paul tells us exactly where we stand. We are sinners. We're tried and condemned. Not just sinners, but verse 10 actually says that we are God's enemies. We're God's enemies. Our sin has put us in a place as God's enemies. And when I think about God's enemies, I think of horrible people. I think of like, okay, first century, I think of Nero, the guy who lit Christians on fire to have light for his parties. I think of Hitler who sent millions to their deaths. I, I think of these horrible people that have done these absolutely despisable things. But I don't think of the people here in this congregation. But what God's word is saying is whether we view ourselves as God's enemies or not. That's where we start out as. And we start out as that because of the way we were brought into the world. You see, I, Jacob Amidon was God's enemy before I accepted him in faith. You are in the exact same spot before you come to Christ in faith. Each of us, every single one of us, start out life as a sinner, born in sin. Nothing we could do against it. And that all happened because of one man, Adam. God created Adam. And Adam was a representation of the whole of humanity. You see, each and every single one of us start out life because of his decisions. But just as one man caused all of this, one man stood and he gave us a way back. And that's Jesus Christ. Can you look at it with me in verses twelve through fourteen? Verses twelve through fourteen and verse five, uh, chapter five, sorry. Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, and even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So this is the point where we're finally starting to see uh, with the power and authority of Jesus coming in to actually start fixing what went wrong. Jesus came to the earth to fix what went wrong. Now what's interesting here is if we change Scripture to mean something else, if we say that the world started out as puddle of sludge on a rock, and we slowly evolved, this passage no longer makes sense in biblical context. If we say that we evolved from apes, this passage no longer makes sense because original sin started with the original man, Adam. So we are all held accountable. If you look at it for a second, you'll see that Adam, if he wasn't the first man, then sin didn't come through the rest of us. It just came through him, and these are just interesting bedtime stories. But God actually created us, fully formed as men and women from the beginning. And then he sinned. Adam sinned. He came fully formed from God, pre-programmed. He was supposed to be the best of us, yet he still chose sin instead of following God. And so thus, everybody after him is in that same state. Scripture acknowledges God in the beginning, started with this one man. And we Know that God taught Adam himself and God stepped in to redeem us from a relationship because in all reality, we couldn't measure up to his standards. Only he alone could meet his standards. So what should be our response? This is our final point. So Paul himself comes to this very question. He actually comes to this in verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, certainly not. How then shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? So in light of our stance and what has been done for us, we now officially have options. Whereas before Jesus, we didn't have options. We were stuck in sin and we had no way out. But Jesus came so that we could actually have options. You see, we were headed toward destruction, but now Christ has given you a new option. Here Paul is noting that if we have trusted Christ and our destination has changed, but also the power of sin in our lives is now diminished. Christ actually has conquered the power of sin in our lives. If you read the next couple of verses with me, you'll find out more. It says, verse 3 through 7. Or do you not know, as many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, even so that we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we have also seen the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So after service today, we are going to go up to a pond, and we're going to have a baptism, and then we're going to have a picnic afterwards. Now, part of why we hold baptisms is found directly in these verses that I just read. So I won't have to reference this later. Actually, it's the way God works. Actually, when I was writing this, I didn't realize that this sermon would fall on this day, but it actually works out perfectly. See, Paul assumes that after accepting Jesus as Savior, you were baptized. He assumes automatically that you were baptized. This is one of the commandments that Jesus Christ Himself gives us in Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses nineteen through twenty. He said, "Go." Make disciples, baptize them in my name. So, let's look at the scripture for answers. Um, no, sorry. Let's, so, why are we baptized? Let's look at the scripture for answers. It says that we were baptized into his death. So, what does that look like? What does baptized into his death look like? We were buried in, with him through death. So, here's the question. Baptism is a way, eh, not a question, an answer. Bat- to, bat- to, wow, I cannot speak. Ugh. Yeah, I've got those moments. Baptism is a way that we identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That is why we baptize, to identify with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So here's the question, did Jesus fully die? Did Jesus fully die? You see, there are two common ideas about baptism, that you're either sprinkled or that you're fully immersed. And so the question is, from the text, it's talking about Jesus fully dying and that he actually completely went under. See, the point is we identify with Jesus through this text. And if we're identifying with him, we have to identify with him wholly or fully. So if Jesus was only partially dead, then we would sprinkle. But if Jesus was fully dead, then we would be fully submerged. And that's part of where we get full submersion. That's why today when I have people up here, uh, at the pond, I will actually be dunking them completely under because Jesus went completely into death. He wasn't sprinkled with a little bit of death. It wasn't this partial thing. He wasn't in major pain. And then he came back to life suddenly. No, it was a complete death. And that is why we go completely under because it's an identification process. Now, when I put you under later today, I will actually say that you were buried in the likeness of his death. That's what we say when we go under. That's part of that symbology. Buried in the likeness of his death. And when he comes back up, when I bring you back up, for those who are being baptized, he'll be raised in the newness of his life. What we're saying is you have died to sin. And you have been raised in the power and life of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism itself does not save you. Baptism comes after salvation. We have to trust Christ as our Savior and then we are baptized. Christ gave clear instructions, and Paul is actually reiterating them here in chapter 6. Now, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 28. So that's what you're going to hear me say up at the pond because it was God's power, it was the Son's actions, and it was the Spirit's gift that secures us and ensures our final destination after salvation you may have noticed that Paul ends his verse 7 by saying that we are no longer slaves to sin. So let's follow that up and wrap this sermon up because I'm getting hungry. Maybe you are too. So let's start verse 7. We'll read through 11 and we'll wrap this thing up. 7 through 11. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. And death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the practical power of Christ in our lives to change you today. Yes, in church we talk about getting saved and going to heaven, and that's incredibly important. Getting saved and going to heaven, important stuff. But the gospel not only changes your life and your future destination, but it also has the power to change your life now. It can change what your life looks like today, and it can do it tomorrow as well. It can improve your life today because of what Christ is doing. Paul says that if we have died to sin, then we are free from it. From the moment you were born, you have been a slave to sin. It's what the gospel tells us. If you don't believe me, you can ask any parent of a toddler if their child has um, selfish tendencies. Okay, you probably uh, have at least seen one or two toddlers, and this is more than just survival instincts. The evolutionist will tell you that this is survival instincts. This is a no, this is mine. Okay, one of my children, I won't name, I've got three, but one of them, their first word was no. Uh, I don't know if uh, any of your children, their first word was no as well, or mine, I've heard mine as well. Um, But we have this baked in sin nature. And then Christ had to come in to free it from us. And all it is is a faith step to be able to actually step away from that. We are each born with this desire not only to survive, but to have everything point to us. But Christ has handed us the key. Unfortunately, many, even when handed the key of freedom, reject it. But why? Why would you reject the key when it's been given to you if it would unlock the cell that you've been locked in all your life? There's actually an interesting phenomenon called institutionalized. Institutionalized. You may have heard of it before. It's the phenomenon we're at a point where someone who once hated their jail cell has been there so long that when offered opportunity for freedom, they can't think of anywhere else and they want to be in that jail cell that, because that's become their comfort. That's become all they know. And unfortunately, most of us, when offered the opportunity to change, to be free of the sin that has held us back for so long, we're afraid because we have found comfort in it. And we don't accept Christ's offer, even though it gives us complete freedom from it. Christ has literally done all the work for us. And our job, literally, we just have to step forward and trust him. So today I'm going to ask you some questions as we close. Number one, have you been trying to earn your way back to God? Have you been trying to earn your way back to God? Maybe you accepted Christ as Savior. And you have found that you are still trying to prove to God that you were worth saving found yourself there? God, I am worth saving, so I'm going to do this. The Bible tells us that we are justified by our faith alone. Passages we just read, you are justified by your faith alone. It is what we do with our hands is an after effect. It shows a change of heart, but we're not justified by what we do with our hands. What we do with our hands is an outpouring of gratitude for what has been done for us. Number two, have you recognized that Jesus has died in your place? Have you recognized that Jesus has died in your place? He took what should have been our punishment when we were his enemies and he died in our place. Finally, have you allowed yourself to fully die to sin? Or do you still find yourself bound by its power? Jesus said that he came to set us free. He did all of the work. You only have to be willing to give up your control. And unfortunately, that is the hardest part, giving up control. If you've ever given up any kind of measure of control in your life, you've probably found it just as difficult. But if you give up control today and allow Him to lead you, He will lead you into a new life. So let yourself die to sin. Allow Him to have control, and He will change what you thought impossible. Let's close in prayer. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.